Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Guys, welcome to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, today is going to be a fun episode for me. I've been looking forward to this for weeks now. Uh, But guys, first I want to thank our sponsors, Maxwell Soaps. If you guys love soap like I do... um, but I also have diabetic itchy skin and the soaps that they made are actually handmade and there are no detergents in them. So it actually helps me with my skin. So if you have that kind of issues, definitely check them out. But the best thing is for every bar of soap that somebody buys, they donate a bar of soap to help the homeless population in the city of Los Angeles, California. So it's, it's soap with a mission. So definitely check them out at Maxwell soaps. Guys, this is going to be a fun episode. We're going to be talking a lot of things, business, family, podcasting. So make sure you have your pen and paper out because my brother, Dan, is an amazing individual. Um, and I I just got off of his show and he is such an amazing guest. I hope that I can just be as good, 10% as good as he is. So Dan, my brother. Welcome to the show. Well, man, thanks for having me. Thanks for the kind words. And you're already 110% as good. So you're you're on it. You're crushing it. It was an honor to have you on Dreams Are Real, and I'm glad to be here. So what's going on, my brother? Well, I just got done with a be- walk on this beautiful, sunshiny day, and I'm grateful to be alive and upright and doing what we can to help people achieve their dreams in the world. How about you? Uh, well, I just got done doing an, another amazing episode, and then I'm, I'm looking at myself. I'm like, I must be crazy because I have for Thursday, I have like six people I'm interviewing in one day, and I'm like, <laughs> and and but now I'm getting so backlogged because I only release one episode a day. So, but now I got a, I guess I just got a bunch in the can to to actually release at a later date. I I love how you say you only release one a day when most people, myself at the moment included, only release one a week. And you're you're like one a day. That's just not very much. I got news for you, man. One one a day is a lot. (laughs) And, and, you know, I'm trying to learn from you. You know, that's one thing. Like, I think I'm going to be asking a lot of questions because this time, last time I was kind of rushed because of time constraints and all that stuff. But now we have up to like two hours to do, do whatever, talk about whatever you want. So I want to definitely hop into your past, you know, because the past is what makes you the man that you are today. And then I want to hop into business and then hop into podcasting. So we'll be all over the place and I'm okay with that. Hey man, I'm good. You lead, I'll follow. I'm there. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, where you're from and, you know, like we've talked in a little bit of past, we got about a half hour into the episode and then it cut out before. So now we're going to start all over again. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you and what little Dan was like. Well, I, I love a clean slate and I love the opportunity to begin at the beginning. Little Dan was frankly kind of a hot mess. <laughs> I was, uh, I, I have memories back to six months old. So I have really clear memories of when I was younger. And some of that is good. Some of that is bad. Like I guess most people, I remember my eye surgery at six months old and a year old, but the first major memory that that truly kicks in that is formative for me was when I was hidden from my father at two years old and I was hidden until I was eight. My mother took me out of that and into a separate abusive situation, unfortunately. Now, what do you mean by um, hidden? Well, she, my mother, 
and my father, let's just put it gently, didn't get along and they were having some challenges. And I remember the day that we that we ended up leaving was a day that my father tried to put me on a motorcycle without a helmet. And there's a, a whole big backstory to that. But I and I was two years old and he we go up a hill on a gravel driveway. I fall off the motorcycle and roll back down the hill. And my father stops and looks back. And I, I assume he maybe saw my mother running over to him and over to me and saying, seeing that I was okay. But then he drove off. And when he came home, we were gone and we were, we were taken to where he had no idea where we were. He did not see me for six years until, uh, until one night when I was eight, the gentleman that my mom and I were staying with, his name was Ed, not the most pleasant individual in the world. He came home one night, he was drunk, and he looked at both of us and he said, I'm going to leave and I'll be back in two hours. And if you're here when I get back, I'll kill you. And so as you can imagine, we thought it best to leave. And we did. We went back to the town where my dad was. And, and I only found out recently that we didn't, I thought we just magically connected with my dad. But as it turns out, a friend of his saw my mother or me and told him. And then that's how he and I got reconnected. And I remember, I, I didn't know the workings of that, but I remember the first day I saw him again. Now, did you, I mean, obviously you're probably not going to know, but did you hit your head at all at that time? Not that time. I have had several TBIs. I've had five major concussions since that time, but to my knowledge, not at the, not then. Because I know, like a lot of times, if a person has uh, when they're younger as a child, they have uh, sometimes they have a TBI. Sometimes it triggers certain things to where they can you know remember. I forget the name of the. Uh, I read a book about it where people can just remember everything. They have that hyper memory. So that's why I just yeah I, I'm not the uh, I don't have the photographic memory or the other word that I'm blanking on as well I, I'm not quite that fortunate when I was younger before my TBIs I was pretty close I could my memory was incredible at that point now I see it in pictures but some of the details particularly as I get closer to present or my short term memory tend to be a little bit more challenging since all of the concussions. Now, when you were growing up, you know, because I think me and you had kind of the same growing up, um, my outlet was reading. You know, that was my escape from reality. What was little Dan's escape from reality? Well, reading was certainly a part of it. And and I got to a spot where when I was younger, we when we came back to town, before I found reading, I found imagination games. I found go out and pretend to be a superhero. Green Lantern was my favorite. And I would play in the neighborhood. That was when my mom and I were living in just incredible poverty. And I, I look back at it and I, I, I'm thankful that I didn't fully realize it then. But I look back now and realize that my mother was literally selling herself so that we had rent and we would not have any food or we'd have half a hot dog in the house and I'd eat and she wouldn't. And I was bullied and dealt with all of that. But then we moved. She got married. Uh, well, we, we before even before she got married, I started to get into books. And that's when I discovered the library. And I got to a spot where my mother, she did puzzles. She did crossword books. She was literally the smartest person I've ever known on the planet, unbelievably intelligent, and gave all of it, all of her opportunity up to give it to me. And I found my path through books. And I was reading 30 books a week at that point. At a similar time, I discovered role-playing games, true imagination tabletop games, Dungeons and Dragons, things like that. And both of those things, I still do quite a bit to this day. 
Okay, so now, were you a good student in school? Well, were you studious? <laughs> I was. I I was very good at school, but I was not very good at doing school. I was the ultimate procrastinator. I, I could do it, but I just didn't want to. So I knew in, in the early grades, it was easy because I could skate by. They had to force me to do things like learn handwriting or anything that was repetition. They had to just almost hold me down and force me to do it. I remember learning my multiplication tables and I was maybe the last kid in my class to do it, even though I could do math better than anyone else in the class. I was the last kid to be able to write my name and write the cursive alphabet, but I could read it better than anyone else. And I had a vocabulary higher than anyone else. And so that was the early grades where you could, where you could skate by, except when they forced you for repetition. As we went further along, I recognized that I had to do some of the work, but what I would do is become a master at putting it off. And then and that was probably the first part of my life where I learned efficiency. And I learned efficiency out of necessity. How do I take something that normal people would do in 20 hours and do it in two hours? Gotcha. Check the box. How do I do it on time? Eh, that's a little different conversation. That skill came much later. So uh, what was your earliest rem remembrance of a dream? Oh, of a dream? I remember I remember you asking me this question. Yeah, so man. I, thought... I love it when people turn my questions on me. That's that's fantastic. Um, I that means I'm paying attention. Yeah, that yes, it does. So if if it's of if it's of dreams as in I'm sleep and dreaming, I have memories back to the same six months old, I remember some of my some of my dreams and the forms that they took. And most of them were pretty scary for me, which I now recognize was probably a manifestation of some of my daily life. And if you if you think of it in dreams in terms of what I aspired to be, I I wanted to be a detective. I wanted to be an attorney. I, I wanted to I wanted to do those. I wanted to do something big. I've, I've always had aspirations to do something that helped others and that mattered in some significant way, no matter what dream I've had throughout my life. I, I love that. So, you know, talk to us now. You're out of grammar school. Tell us. Tell us about the high school, Dan. Were you the Dan, the man? About <laughs> I was anything but. And anybody who I went to high school with who's listening to this is now laughing hysterically as they think of Dan, the man. No, I was about as geeky, nerdy kid as you can get. I was about as insecure as you could get in most areas. I began to find myself in a couple of areas. Certainly gaming had helped. I, I, I had gotten kicked out of band in sixth grade, so that it wasn't with music. I certainly wasn't built with or, or going to be playing any sports, even though I, I began to enjoy basketball and weightlifting. I was terrible at both of them. I found a little bit of my own in debate, and I loved that. I was very, very good at it. I unfortunately was also hobbled by what so many people deal with at that point in their life. And I dealt with it for a long time, which is an incredible ego covering my insecurity. It wasn't ego in that I wanted to be a jerk or, or I just thought terrible of other people. It was ego in that I was so insecure that I was covering it with arrogance and ego. And man, my starting in probably high school is the first time I would say that my, my ego could have filled another hotel room. And, you know, like I, I can actually relate. Uh, because I, that's the way I was, you know, like outside, I would be that macho, rough, um, 
But, you know, I mean, even in, in my life today, sometimes I act that way. You know, I try not to. But I know I'm, I'm confident in the man that I am today that I'm OK with telling people, yes, for Christmas, I get bath bombs from love. <laughs> nice. I know, I've, you know, I've got no problem. Hey, bath saying, bomb. I know. mean, what color? That's the question, right? Like um, all of them, baby. All, all, all of them. them. Nice. You got to my, but, my you son know, likes to mix them. So, yeah. But my ego, like when I would, if I was in that, you know, back in that young punk days, I'd be like, oh, that's so gay. Right. You know, and then be, I'd be sitting in the bath bomb later. You know what I mean? So, and I love what you say that, you know, sometimes when a person acts like they have a big ego, it's just because they're very insecure inside. I find the vast majority of the time it is ego covering insecurity. In fact, even in our Foundations of Success platform, when we do the leadership training, there's a little segment in there that talks about how arrogance and confidence aren't directly connected and how er and how ego is covering insecurity because it's it's such a crucial component to learning leadership is recognizing what you're really seeing, what you're really experiencing and who you're really being. And for me at that point in time, I guess I was at the spot where I felt so physically overwhelmed and, and, and put down. I, I was dealing with being bullied pretty badly. I didn't feel like I could stand out in other ways. I didn't fit in with music or sports or any of those things. I knew I was smart. It was the one thing that I had. And, I, and darn, if I wasn't going to rub that in your face and show you I knew everything about everything. Now, of course, as we grow older, we recognize how little we know. But at that point, like many teenagers, I thought I knew 100% of everything there was in the world and certainly more than my parents. Now I recognize that uh, that I know every year I know I, I realize how much less I know uh, compared to what's out there. Like the, like the late great um, actor Roddy Piper says, just when you think you have all the answers to life, life changes the questions. Nice. Yeah. Rowdy, Roddy. Gotta love it. So now you said, you know, you said you might have wanted to go into law. You might have wanted to be an attorney. What happened when you graduated? Did you get any offers to go to any colleges or anything? Yeah. So this is where a little bit of my arrogance comes in, too, is when, when I was in school, I took the ACT and I did very well on it. And so I decided I would apply to exactly one college. Now, my parents are like, oh, you should apply to a bunch of colleges. I said, no, I scored well enough. I'm going to get in. And it was likely true, but it was totally ego speaking. I don't need to apply anywhere else. I'm going to go where I want to go. And I did get in. So what did that do? But fuel the ego. And I went to a great school. I live in the town where it is today, University of Michigan. Go blue. I'm all about uh, all about my Wolverines. Wolverines. Absolutely, man. I, I bleed maize and blue, but with a hopefully a whole lot less ego than I once did when I went there first. But I loved, man, the, the chance to escape my world. You see, when I was in the midst of all that ego, I was really struggling as a person. And I was struggling to find my identity. I was struggling to feel valid and valuable. I, I felt hopeless. I felt unseen and unheard through most of my high school years. And and most people around me, even my good friends, didn't realize how bad it got. And it got to the spot where at 16, I actually survived my first suicide attempt. And I came out of it with two key understandings that would propel me to college and beyond. The first was that 
your environment, where you're around, who the people you are around, that that has influence, of course, but it's your choices that create change. And my brothers and sisters had been involved in drugs and alcohol and violence and all different sorts of things in my family that I dealt with. So I thought one of the first choices I'm going to make to create change is get the heck out of here, which is part of why I went to college. The, the second understanding informed everything to this day, which is that I was meant to do something significant to help a lot of people. Unfortunately, at that point in time, I had no idea what that meant. So I went to college off in search of that, as probably so many people do. Now, you know, I just want to say, you know, we're talking about ego. And one of the things that, you know, kind of knocked my ego down in a good way was when I started taking martial arts and started, you know, and doing MMA and stuff like that. And, and one of my, uh, my uh my teachers you know he was like you know five foot four 120 pounds and could wreck everybody in a room <laughs> right and he once told me he said you know you know because back then everybody was wearing the affliction shirts everybody's ufc and all that blah 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 he said you know what he says i don't have to feel that way he says it's kind of like when you see a lamborghini driving down the street it could do 55 it doesn't have to do 200 miles an hour because everybody knows it could do 200 miles an hour. And he said, that's the way, you know, you should actually, the way you should live your life. You should be that humble, you know, you should try to be as humble as you can. And he said, there's a difference between being weak and being meek. You know, Jesus was meek, but the, the definition of meekness is power under control. So if you can get that in your head, then you don't have to have an ego the size of Kentucky. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And when I, when I jumped into martial arts much later, much later in this story, uh, but probably eight years ago now, recognize beginning to recognize some of those things was so important for me. And I found it fascinating that the, the longer that someone studies martial arts, the less likely they are to physically need it the less likely that they are to be a target without ever having to say anything, the less likely they are to have to physically employ it, even though the, the mental and emotional and wisdom aspects certainly apply the entire time. I, I, and I love that. And I, I think that the more that you grow into yourself, the more you get to a spot of being rather than trying to be, the more that you will come into your own and, and the less of that ego will naturally be present. So now what did you go to college for? What was your major? Well, I went with so many thoughts in my head. I ended up studying English and history mostly because of what we talked about earlier, that repetition thing. I, I, I would have done engineering. I had the mind for it, but I knew that I could not sit and just do problem after problem. It would break me. So I did English and history, having no idea directly what I would do with it, but thinking that'll be my gateway to law school. And I got two degrees in four years. I also worked 40 hours a week the whole time. I, I gained a lot of experience doing that. I ran some organizations. I had a girlfriend. I slept three hours a night. I I certainly enjoyed college in a lot of ways. Not I was pretty conservative at the time, so not as partying version as much as some of the others, although not none. But it was it was a great experience. I loved being at Michigan. I missed that. I, I I have a regret in the sense that I put too much pressure on myself to hurry through everything when I was here. And I did that through most of the first probably 40 years of my life is 
let's hurry up and get to the next thing. Hurry up and get to the next thing. I had not connected that being present is what matters and that fulfilling the purpose you're meant for today is true success. I spent most of my time being either wishful or wistful, even then, even in the midst of some of the best moments of my life. And I, I love that, you know, cause, and you know, like I tell my, you know, my son isn't now he's a, uh, almost done with his freshman year in college. And uh, I told him, I said, go to school, but make sure you're going to school for your passion, whatever your passion is. Cause I told him, I said, you know, 80% of the people that go to college are out of their field within three years, yeah. <laughs> you know? So make sure that you love what you do. And, you know, and I think this is, he's, well, he's been saying it. he's got his mother's brain, by the way. Um, he's been saying he wanted to be a Marine biologist since he's like three. So it's kind of like, it's not one of those, Oh, I'm going to get a degree. Right philosophy you know my, my son's the same way he's he's either going to do computer programming or mechanical engineering and that's been true for years so you know it's kind of like he he knows where he wants to go so but now you know you took english so what in your later years what did you learn from english and history that helped you in your later years well, early on, I would have told you that I didn't learn very much. Now, I would tell you the skills I learned were incredibly important, and I teach a number of the skills that I learned. I believe communication is one of the foundational skills that we all should improve with, as is persuasion. Add into that time effectiveness and leadership, and you you have a very strong forceful foundation of success. You have the corner, the four cornerstones, as I would call them. And so th two of those cornerstones were gained from, and maybe some of leadership as well, were gained from studying English and history. I learned how to, thanks to a couple of the classes, some of them were not great. Some of them were amazing. Thanks to a couple of those classes, I learned how to express myself in a much more persuasive, powerful way. I learned how to organize my thoughts even better than I had in debate class or anything like that. And I came out of that thinking, man, I, I, I love this stuff, but... And the, the but was, what do you do with it now? Because I decided at the end of all of it that I did not want to go to law school, that I had considered it. I had thought about that. And I had been in this spot where law school was my thing. It was, it was the star that I'd been pointing at. And then I, I realized, wait, that's a lot of repetitive backroom stuff. That's the stuff that I've spent my life avoiding. Better not do that. I'll just take a break and that break turned into forever okay so now so can you graduate because i'm just because i have one of those minds when i talk to somebody like now i, I just close my eyes and i'm uh, and i'm playing their life through my mind and i'm seeing you sitting there in a chair and a table and looking up at having two degrees and you're like oh shit <laughs> that, that, that's now accurate <laughs> yeah, you know now what do i do you know well, yeah they weren't I, exactly engineering degrees and I wasn't going to do law school. So now what do you do with an English and a history degree? Well, the first thought is you think I'll teach. And I realized at that point in time that if I taught kids, and this wouldn't be as true now, but at that point in time that if I taught kids that were high school age or younger, all I would want to do is put them through a wall. I had zero patience. I was impatient. I was not eager. And now I talk to people about the difference between eagerness and impatience and how important that is. It's a transition I've made largely in my life. But I, I, I talked to them about that. I had not gone through it then. I was impatient and people just 
irritated me when I dealt with them in that environment. So then I said, well, I could teach college. And I looked around and realized I would need to go to school for like seven more years. And I said, that's not going to work. And what does that leave you with, with English and history? Welcome to the world of sales. No, okay. Cause now that's my sales is one of my, my favorite things to talk about. I, Mine too. I love, I love it now. <laughs> you know, I, I love sales. I love talking to people. And, you know, now we're just talking about, we'll talk about sales and then business and then podcasting later. But, sure. uh, you know, like I ran a, a fitness and a health and fitness store um, for 30 years, over, over, you know, 30 years in the industry. And at the last couple of years, I just realized a lot of the like kids that would come in for a job or, you know, out of college, they don't know how to talk to people. There, it everything is. I'll text you or you know email you. There's they don't know how to do face to face. You know that it's just it's a weird time to be in. You know especially because I think you know now if you can do sales the right way, you can absolutely crush it. If you're doing sales, if you mix old school and new school together, you're unstoppable. But you get some of these kids that, you know, like I had a kid come in, he's looking for a job and he came in with like a jeans and a, uh, a polo. I mean, uh, a T-shirt. on. he's like, hey, man, you guys got jobs. I'm like, I got a job. You don't have a job. So why don't you turn around, go back, put a shirt and a tie on, come by and see me. And he did. And we eventually hired him. But it's kind of like you ha- it's a whole different element in sales nowadays. And I think if you can, I mean, I know with COVID it's hard now, but it'll get back to that way. But if you can do face to face sales, you can absolutely crush it in these days and age. So talk to us about, you know, you're coming into sales 10, 15 years ago, what it was like. Well, first let me say that I agree completely with what you're sharing in terms of the fact that the principles of sales are always true. The thing, there are things that are just always the case. The practicals differ by the time and the environment and the practicals, the, the tactical aspects, if you will, of what our approaches may have varied. But one of the key components of sales as of life is be more curious, ask better questions. And if I could teach almost anybody one skill, it would be ask better questions, be more curious. And those, these young adults, and, and I would say most older adults could benefit greatly from that skill. I would also say that, that there is less of a teaching of what feels proper. There's also probably a little bit of holding on to old perspectives of proper and the, the, the blending is challenging. I'm certainly not going to be expecting to hire somebody that's wearing jeans and a t-shirt in a formal environment. At the same time, I'm not likely to expect them to walk in in a suit like 20 years ago I might have. So there's there's an interesting mix, as you say, of older and newer. For me, when I came in, I, I and I wish it were only 15 years ago, I started learning sales over 25 years ago. I started learning I suppose, in a sense, I learned it at my first job when I worked at Meyer, uh, which is a grocery store. Even in the dish, wa- in the working, washing dishes, and then getting out and running the counter. But my first intro to sales, even a little bit legitimate, would be when I worked for Sears selling computers and cell phones when I was in college. And 
I got to tell you, I was selling computers when now we talk about, oh, you better have 16 gigabytes of RAM. I remember telling people that eight megabytes of RAM was like more than you'll need. You don't, you definitely don't need that. <laughs> technology was, technology's changed so much, but I, I was selling, right? And I was selling cell phones that were the bag phones and the, and the big flip phones. When you're buying, do I have 60 minutes a month or, oh, maybe I got up to 200 minutes a month that I can be on my phone. And now I look down at my phone and I'm on it for 3000 minutes a month. It's pretty, but, pretty but crazy. Now, you know, we're talking about that, but like, I noticed like sometimes the photo ring and I'll be like, who has the audacity to be calling? <laughs> Who didn't text first? <laughs> yeah, I'm saying you're like, wait a minute. The phone people used to talk on this thing, and it used to be plugged into your wall. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so yeah, like you said it's a whole different world that we do live in. Though. Well, I remember I mean, uh, when I was selling computers, I was also selling answering machines. If that tells you anything, we had an entire two walls that were answering machines, and digital answering machines were the new thing. So that was that was an experience. What I learned to sell there. And I had lots of cool stories of who I sold to, famous athletes and all that. And that was fun. But what I learned to sell there that that stuck with me the most was protection plans. That was was the idea of effectively an extended warranty. And I became the top in our entire in, in the entirety of Sears. I was in the top one percent of selling all of those anywhere. And no, wait, is that you calling me for my car warranty? No, dear God, no. Boy, they'll catch you on a desert island. That is uh, that is unfortunately something that was okay taking to a horrific extreme. Dear God, oh, I received one of those calls not two hours ago. So your timing and <laughs> saying that is very appropriate. But I so I, I left there and oh, can I, I can I ask you a question? Go ahead. Yeah, honestly? sure. Um, because you know, like I was, I'm a, I'm a big rich dad, poor dad guy. Yeah, and I love that he said that had one of the top training schools in the world. What was Sears training like? Not great. It was okay. I mean, for looking at it now, looking at it compared to something I would make as training now, it was pretty terrible. Compared to what was available across various companies then, it was adequate, maybe. But it, it truly wasn't sales training of any kind. It was more of basic very basic customer service, very basic skills that you would that you would need to ring a register, and then you shadow a person for a day or two. Thankfully, uh, my number one gift in the world started to come into awareness at that point in time, which is synthesis. I'm able to watch a hundred people do something, grab a little bit from each one, and make something better than any of them. And I was able to do that there and became very good at what I was doing, although. There was just no upside to where I was. Plus, I was in school. I was working 40 hours a week in basically three days a week, trying to keep it as minimal as possible, going to college two days a week, carrying a full credit load, running some organizations, working on the weekends, having a girlfriend. So I was trying to pack everything into one time. So what was the next logical step after Sears? Well, I don't know about logical. But the next step for me was that I went to the only job that my dad would tell you that he was ever proud that I had, which is that I went and ran a power equipment dealership selling lawnmowers, chainsaws, trimmers, exactly the thing that you would not expect the geeky, nerdy guy that I was to go and do. And I'm very proud of uh, of being the the, uh, the nerd that I am. I'm, I'm 
comfortable with that now, maybe less so then. But I went into a very different environment. A friend of mine worked there. He helped me get in. I ended up becoming the sales manager there. I learned a lot because this was selling a bigger ticket item. This was selling to completely different people. It was the first time I learned, oh, this works with different personalities and this doesn't, and this works in different environments and this doesn't. I don't even know that I knew I was learning those things, but I was sewing all of that together. And I also had an opportunity to impact systems and continue to find efficiencies and make things a little bit better until I chose to get married and was illegally fired from my job because I went on, on my honeymoon. I came back. I find I, I go in and I'm told uh, that I accepted a bad check and I'm like that sucks and he said I took the full amount out of your pay which was illegal and I said well can you explain that to me and he said no and you're fired and I said why he's like because you got married during the busy season bye bye and so I was I, I that was a scary moment in my life I don't think about that moment too often but I, I had literally just gotten married I'm just recently graduated, got not a whole lot going on in life, not a lot of skills built up. And now I'm living in a, in a newly signed apartment with a new wife, with no money, with neither of us working. Yeah. And, you know, cause like I said, when I, when I talk to somebody, their, their life becomes a, a movie in my head and I guess, but it's a good thing to have. And I could just picture you just sitting there talking to your wife. You're not yeah, I, it, it wasn't a good conversation. I, and, and I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, that so, was well, the, I think that was the hardest part for me is, is I felt the injustice of it. And I hadn't yet connected the dots that like life isn't fair, nor does it have to be, nor do we should, nor should we expect it to be. And I was stuck in the this isn't fair and having my little tantrum. So, but you, I also I also discovered my third strength in the world, which is resilience and recognize that, OK, I had my moment. Now let's go do something about it. Now, like I consider my, you know, my 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 wife, you know, I she's known me since I'm 13. So she's an addict and drug addict and alcoholic. And now she knows me. So I, she's my ride or die. You know, so, you know, she's my partner. And so. And for us, it's, you know, it's Kaufman's versus the world. So when that happened, did, did, did it bring you guys closer together? Um, Kind of. I think it was, we were so new. And so it was such a difficult situation that we were, we didn't really know what to do. I think we were confused and we both decided to try and work hard to do something about it. And we were, we were so new that we were committed to one another and, and pushing toward that. But at, at the same point, it, it just, it was just really hard. And then we were in a confined space. We lived together for the first time ever. And, and I hadn't understood, well, let's just say I didn't have the best example of how to have a healthy marriage from when I was younger. And so I had some what I would now say are pretty outdated beliefs, but also a complete lack of understanding of the needs of someone else. And if you're living in ego and you're living in selfishness that you've been bred into, and then you have another person in your life and in your house, and you're, you're pretty immature at the time, it is easy to not give them the space that they need or the understanding that they need. And I had no concept of what she needed. So I would say that was a very stressful time for the two of us, particularly as I went forward and we had multiple eviction notices and things like that, that it got, I mean, that's, that's a tough thing to face in the first few months. And, and our, what we ate in the first months of our marriage 
we had had marinara sauce that was left over from the wedding. We had a 50 pound bag of bread flour that we'd been given and we had a bread machine that we'd been given. So we ate bread and marinara sauce. And then we were going to church at the time and, and we would come out from church and sometimes people would just graciously leave bags of groceries in the car. And that's pretty much what we lived on for several months as I went and, and she attempted to find a job and it didn't go very well. And I went and found a job that would end up becoming a very significant path for me. But in the first six months was brutal, which was straight commission sales on telemarketed leads, driving 2000 miles a week on my own dime. And that was, uh, that's a, if you've, if you've never done that business, that is a rough business to begin with and a high attrition rate. And you better get ready to take a lot of clicks and a lot of no's and you and, and hear a lot of stuff. Oh, he died last week. He can't buy. Oh, anything. man. Oh, it was. Like, uh, we didn't want uh, you here. I know you just drove three hours, but uh, we we told them we didn't have any money. And you call and then you call your call center and they're like, yeah, they told us that. And you're like, oh, OK, great. And I the first six months of that. I lived in one of the biggest sales lessons that, that you'll ever find. Really, I learned two or three key things from it because to be fair, the first six months, I made less than $10,000 and I paid more than $10,000 to work. So I literally paid to work 80 hours a week for the first six months, not home at all for my wife, no money coming into the house, eviction notices, all of those things. It was brutal. The next 12 I figured things out and I also figured out how to sell very differently than anyone else that, that I've ever really seen and certainly later on to train it differently than I've seen. And my next 12 months, my first full year in the business, I made six figures in my early 20s. Now, I wasted it, threw it all away. That'll be part of the story in a minute. But it was a change in things that I learned. The first big lessons that I learned about sales came from that. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, like for me and you, you know, we've been poor. I mean, and when we mean poor, we mean poor, poor. For real. So, yep. you know, so a lot of people don't, you know, when they say, oh, you know, yeah, you know, money's tight. It's like, no, listen, when you make a wish sandwich where you have two pieces of bread, <laughs> yeah. something between them, that's poor. But then you come to realize how good we have it. Like now, like me, we went out for, for uh, my wife. We, I try to take her out to a melting pot every couple months. That's her favorite place to go. And nice. I order a, uh, a lobster tail every time. You're ordering lobster tail and filet mignon, and you were homeless, a homeless drug addict getting thrown out of a crack house. And I said, exactly. That's why I can order one because yeah, I paid my it, dues. So that's six months. You were literally paying your dues. Oh man, I was paying dues and I'd paid them when I was a kid. I was paying them then. And I've, and I've paid them a number of times since. And I'm not, and the difference is now, like, I'm just, I'm not afraid to, to pay the dues, right? Like it's there. And I also having traveled the world now and seen in the middle of Manila, something like Smoky Mountain, where these kids literally live in a mountain of garbage with no power, no food and no shoes and walking, running around on glass. And I think, man, maybe I never was poor. Like yeah. poor is very relative, right? You know, and so like I know what when my moment of when the when the light switched is when I was selling timeshares. I remember the exact moment that it flipped the switch and I started crushing it. So what was your light switch moment? 
I would say there were a couple and they, they relate to those lessons that I alluded to a moment ago. One of them was every time we would, we would be done with an appointment and I have all kinds of crazy stories seeing, I saw three shootings in that job. I showed up to one appointment and, oh, and there was a woman that answered the door wearing nothing saying I'm ready for my appointment. And I'm like, yeah, not my appointment. Um, I had a guy take a swing at me and I was at all these things. What was the deal? Uh, no, not that deal. Uh, I, someone else did go back and close that deal, but I was, that was not one I was taking. Uh, but I realized like one of the things that we had to do is every day we would have every day when we were done with an appointment, we would have to go to a payphone or, or if you had a cell phone and I didn't have a cell phone at that time, I had no money. Right. So we would have to drive to a payphone and call and result our sales appointments with our boss. Now, the number of drug deals that I interrupted as this pasty face kid out here in the middle of Detroit or Flynn or DC or wherever I ended up being, the number of drug deals I interrupted where I'm like, sir, can I just please use the phone for a minute was a lot. But I, I would call in and of course, my boss would, would answer and say, all right, great. You know, what, what's, your, what's your result? And I would want to say, I sold it because he would just ask how much? Good job. Have a great day. The first six months, I didn't get to say that very often. The second thing I would want to say, you would you would think, oh, you know, I tried, but I didn't get it. No, I wanted to say they weren't home because if they weren't home, in my mind, it wasn't my fault, right? Like I didn't have to deal with that. And he would say, oh, that's too bad. Did you, did you do the things you needed? Did you wait long enough? Whatever. Okay, good. Go home. Have a good day. Try again tomorrow. The hardest one was when I would call and he would say, how'd you do? And I'd say, well, I didn't sell. And this is the light bulb that transitioned between the first six months and the next 12. When he, when I would call in that first six months and he would say, well, what happened? And I, I would say something like, they didn't like the color. They didn't have enough money. They weren't interested. They didn't have time. They, 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 they. Now, what were you selling by the way? Uh, in this case, I, I had been selling kitchen refacing is where I started. I ended up adding windows and siding into that. I've sold a bunch of stuff since, but I was selling in, I was selling home improvements. Okay. And so I would say they, they, they a lot. And almost every new salesperson, two things you'll see. One is they tend not to ask questions. And two is that they say the word they when they're talking about it all the time. In the next 12, I figured out, wait a minute, it's not their responsibility to buy. It's my responsibility, and hear this, not to sell, but to help them solve their problem, to help them reduce their pain. That's my responsibility. It's, it's my responsibility to help them see it because they're ignorant, not ignorant, stupid, but ignorant, unaware. And it's my job to help, to help clear that. And so... If I can clear the fog, they're going to look at it and go, well, of course I'd have to have it. Why wouldn't I do it? And when I got that, I said, hmm, what do I need to do? And what I needed to do was go back to something to a lesson that I had learned in high school, which is to, that I would never want to lose, not lose to the same thing twice, because sometimes you can't avoid that. But I committed that I would never lose to the same thing the same way twice. I learned that in high school in debate. This is a, still a painful lesson for me. My partner and I, my it was my senior year, we lost twice. We lost once during the year and we were like, I don't know, it was like 34 and one. We were very, very good. We get to state finals, quarterfinals. We hit that exact same team. Now we had convinced ourselves it was a fluke. It was ridiculous. I mean, we'd never otherwise lost, right? 
So we didn't change anything. And you know the story of that. I did the same thing. I get the same result. We lost in quarterfinals when we were the favorites to win state. And I took that and it has burned itself deep in my soul that I will never lose to the same thing the same way twice. Well, that came back here in my sales world. And I said, if that's the case, then what I need to do every time I leave and I haven't sold is I need to call, reach out, study, figure out what will I do differently if I hit the same situation next time. And that practice, first I would figure it out. It might take me a day and a half. Eventually it would be later that night. Then it would be when I got to the car. Then it would be when I left the house. And eventually I'd figure it out while I was sitting at the table before it ever happened. And lo and behold, my closing percentage skyrocketed because I was there to help people. And I had done the work to figure out how, because I recognized that it was in, that my success was in my control and no one else's. Okay. Now let me just, uh, cause now this is fun. This is, this, I'm enjoying this conversation immensely. So I just want to say thank you for taking the time. <laughs> oh, thank you, man. I'm loving it too. This is um, my world. Now, like in sales, I noticed a lot, even like when I was selling timeshare. So I did that for like six years and I loved it and I crushed it, but, but because of some little old man that helped me. But um, when I learned the hard way in a good way though, that not to assume anything when i get to a customer's when a customer says absolutely and what happened was i don't think i've ever told this story in front of but so here i go i go down i, I get my tour and I guy comes in he's like wearing jeans and flip-flops and a shirt and long hair and i'm going oh jesus christ i'm like oh, this is gonna be the longest two hours so i show him everything he's like yeah 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 and then we get down to the numbers and i show him the numbers and you know, normally when you see a, 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 a number, the people like their eyes wide open. He's like, yeah. He's like, I'll take 52 weeks. I say what? <laughs> and I, I, excuse me? He's like, yeah, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm one of the uh, managing partners at IBM. I'd like to buy a whole year of timeshare and just put it on my, my black card here. And I'm going to pay nice. it. And from that moment on, I never assumed anything about any sale ever again and i think oh, a lot man. of people have a problem you know like say you're selling you know home improvements you go into a people's house and you're like oh, these people are, are never gonna buy. oh i mean it's it's amazing people would hand out the leads at the beginning of the day and people would look at the lead and go that's a bad lead they're looking at a piece of paper and five words on it that's a bad lead and i i heard that one thing so i the reason i didn't call that out isn't because I don't believe it's critically important. It's one of the top three lessons that I train in sales. In fact, when I give the five objections that you have to that you need to overcome so that you can get past your own objections to selling, this is one of them. It's don't prejudge. And I would say that it has to do with a lot more than just selling. In life, we should not prejudge. I learned it in a very similar way that you did. I would it was beat into me in training. And training that that we went through two weeks of training for the in-home sales. And they were just like, don't prejudge, don't prejudge, don't prejudge. I drive to my very first appointment. My very first appointment in the middle of Detroit. I'd never been to Detroit. Every house on the block burned down except this one. I'm like, oh man, I pull up in my little Ford probe and I park out front so I can see my car from the window because I'm kind of terrified. I walk up to the house and we go inside and it's like hoarders gone wild. Everything is everywhere. I sit down and it splorches like it's sticky. 
There's two people there. They were nice enough. When we when I did their estimate, I had to call my boss because I didn't know how to how to price for getting rid of bugs in a kitchen and when we were gonna remodel the kitchen. And I just get to the end, and all that's going through my head this whole time is don't prejudge, don't prejudge, don't prejudge. Because it was my first appointment. And I sat down and I looked at them and I'm like, would you like to pay, pay, pay cash or finance? And they looked at me and they said, oh, well, we've been saving for this for years. This is my, the husband said, this is my gift to my wife. So we'll pay cash. Um, did you need 50% of that up front? It's six thousand. Oh, 50% is like 5,000. Great. I'll just go get it. And he walks in the back and goes and gets it. I'm just sitting there in my mind going, I'm really glad I listened to that one lesson. <laughs> Yeah, that's what you're like. Uh, I need to check that cash to make sure it's real. Oh know? my gosh, it was it was a thing. But I, I teach everybody this because you just don't know. You have no idea, and it goes the other way too. I I have done a presentation in a ten million dollar house for a two thousand dollar kitchen that they could not get approved for. And, and that they didn't have the cash to pay for, or not a kitchen, a bathroom. But I, and I've done that. And so whichever direction it is, you have no idea. So the best thing to do, go in and be more curious. Just ask and look and do your thing. This is also a spot where recognizing that doing the right thing is always the right answer. So if you go in and you, and you recognize that people matter most, relationships are everything, that you treat people as people and you do everything that you can to help them, that the rest takes care of itself. I love that. So, you know, obviously being on the road all that time and putting mileage on your car. Oh, it was brutal. It, it wasn't sustainable. So what did you do after that? <laughs> it was it was brutal, man. I was I was 100,000 miles a year on a car that was not built for that. That's how I destroyed my knee. That's why I have bone on bone in my left knee. I ended up driving. We ended up moving to DC and I drove a stick shift in DC, 2000 miles a week. I do not recommend that for anybody who's considering it. Just don't. Um, I, I then moved and I ended up selling for a, I ended up managing rather for that company. And then I ended up moving to a company that sold in-home food and grocery service, which was, uh, and I became, I had become the top salesperson or one of the top salespeople in the industry for home improvements. Then I just said, no, no, no. I want to manage because I want to help more people. And I built my way up. And then I got recruited to go sell in home food and grocery service, like uh, food in a freezer thing, six months of food in a freezer and sold that and did really well at it, got moved around the country. And then my wife got pregnant and we'd gotten moved to Indiana. We'd, so we'd gone from Michigan to D.C. to Indiana, and she was eight months pregnant, and they had a conference call. I was working for a company called Colorado Prime, selling this food in a freezer. I was a, I was a location manager that was doing incredibly well, had won multiple times, manager of the month, all of this. They had just agreed they, to promote me to area vice president. They'd flown me to my first industrial psychologist appointment ever to get interviewed and make sure that I was good for it. We were going to sign the papers the next day. And they had a conference call and they said, we've been around for 50 years. We're declaring bankruptcy today. Your insurance ends today. Remember that eight-month pregnant wife. You, uh, <laughs> Your severance is what you can take from the office you're in. Have a good day. <laughs> That's when you just back up. I'm taking everything. <laughs> and so here again, you're sitting at the kitchen table and like, oh, man. Can't believe this happened again. 
at eight months pregnant, I go home and tell my wife that, and she's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like that, like you were when you left this morning, you were gonna get a promotion that was gonna take us where we want to go and be a bunch more money and help. And you came home and you don't have a job, insurance, or severance, well, and you're not like, even getting your final check. You know, like Mike Tyson says, everybody's got to plan until you get punched in the mouth. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, so I, what'd I'm, you do? What happened? What, what what was the next step? So it was it was very interesting because I was I was still living in my ego and all of that, but I got very quickly two job offers, and I was so blessed by that. One, and this is where it gets it gets fascinating. One of these was my dream job that I had basically prayed for for a long time and looked for for a long time. It was being a national training manager. It was doing the thing. The other would, that would have taken us to Chicago. The other would take us back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and would allow me to be, which was somewhere I loved, and would be being a regional manager and back into home improvements and doing that. And my, all the logic would say, go be, go be the national training manager. It's a great position. But something hit me wrong. And this is where one of the principles that I follow, which is always do the right thing, even if it's inconvenient. And if in doubt, do what's right. All of those things, like I, I will, if your gut says no, trust it. If it says yes, validate. My gut said, for some reason, don't take that job in Chicago. And so I said no to my dream job and yes to this job back in Michigan, which was, a, it was a good job. I drive back to Michigan. I go look for a house. We had no money and bad credit. We were, I was looking for a house. I finally convinced someone to rent to us. And then I go, I get my wife. I bring her up. She sees the house. She's in tears. She hates it. Every bit of it has no AC. She's pregnant. It's the middle of summer. That was fantastic. So kudos to me. But as she saw it, she just hated it. Like I did a horrible job. Like it was, just not a good series of moments. But this is where a friend of mine would call it a myrony, a, a my personal irony, synchronicity in motion really happened. I mentioned my wife was eight months pregnant. We go to the hospital and she has a new doctor. Now she's at U of M hospital instead of a small, much smaller hospital on the outskirts of Indianapolis. And she goes to give birth to my son. And she has huge problems. Problems that in any other hospital, she probably would have died. One of the top specialists in the world happens to be visiting U of M hospital, comes in, saves her life. He, my son was fine the whole time, thankfully, but saves her life without us having gone through that, without me having said no to the Chicago thing, everything else, my wife would have been dead. You don't know, but your path matters. I love it. So now what year was this? <laughs> so now we are up to 2003, man. We've gotten we've we've gotten within 17 years. Don't worry, the rest will pass more quickly. <laughs> well, I'm just trying, you know, trying to get a timeline because I'm thinking, you know, you got that movie in your head. We got to make sure you know where you are. Yeah, it's like I, I don't want it. I don't want it to be one of those Quentin Tarantino films. Oh, right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we're 2000. My son was born July 1st, 2003. So he's and 18 now, huh? He will be 18 in just a couple months. Goodness wow. help me. Isn't that crazy how time works? That's amazing, man. And he's going to go, go. He wants to be a, a computer geek. A computer, either a computer programmer or a mechanical engineer, one of the two. And in the, yeah, so he'll graduate in seven weeks. Goodness gracious. Pretty God, crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. 
So I, at that point, I'm back, and I'm and, and that's when I started leading larger teams. This is I had gotten into multi-unit management a little bit, but that's what this is when I really got into leading teams of dozens and then hundreds. And I, I worked in home improvements for a while. I then they offered me several promotions, but I couldn't take them because I, I, I couldn't move for some family reasons at the time. And so I left, I'd been with Home Depot actually for a number of years and I left and I, I went to work for a small family owned company for a year as, as because I was chasing a title because I thought being a vice president would be cool. As it turns out, when you work for a family owned company, not everything is always um, kosher and it wasn't always. So after a year I left there and I was happy to leave. It was a good, it was a good choice. And I decided I was done with home improvements. I was done with direct sales for a while. And so I decided I would go into what at for some reason in my mind, I had defined as quote unquote, real leadership. I decided to go into retail <laughs> and you'll appreciate the humor of that. Uh, I was uh, like, this is where all the real leaders must be right. They all, they're all in retail, aren't they? No, those are the ones that are working holidays every weekend. That was like, me, man. Oh, and, and you have no family life. So I, I, I went into it. I, I started by working as a district manager for Brookstone, and, which was gifts and gadgets in malls I and airports. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I liked a lot of it. I took a huge pay cut to go there to to start there. And because it's like anything, you change industries, you take a couple steps back to go forward. I knew that I would build up. I worked there for a couple of years. I learned that's where I learned how to merchandise and I learned a lot of different skills. I then were I took a stopover in in a uh, in working for a company that did that did textbook sales for across college campuses. I was a regional manager there and we didn't just sell textbooks. We sold food and clothing. So that was my exposure to that. And I was recruited out of there to the job where I learned the most of any job in my life, which was a company called Parities that runs airports. Uh, they run retail stores in airports. And that was insane. It was easily, now we're, so now we're up to 10 years ago. See, seven years went fast. Uh, we, we, oh my gosh, when I jumped into airports, I had no idea what I was getting into. But I, I also had no idea the level at which I would be able to learn and how much I'd be able to sew together that allowed me to be where I am now. And that is the job that I ended up leaving to form my company. So we are really very close to my own business world now. And, you know, that's and it's amazing. And, you know, like you're talking about, um, you know, marketing, you know, because I was and, you know, you talk about placement of stuff, you know, when you're in like one of those newspaper places. That them places make some serious, serious bank because people are just picking up shit <laughs> just to eat. I mean, and people don't realize how much stuff that people just pick up just because it's sitting in front of them. And I think that's where a lot of people, you know, like you said, they, you know, you have to learn about what, why things people sell and how to make sure that they're in their reach. So, and that's why those couple of spaces right by the register are prime real estate. And once you learn stuff like that, then it's like you, it, it changes your whole mindset on stuff, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, there, there's so much that comes out of that. Like just learning that there's, and I, I learned a lot of detail because again, I'm a systems guy. I'm, a, I'm an efficiency guy. I'm a strategy guy. So I, I learned that 36 inches is the perfect distance between fixtures, not 33, because if it's, if it's 30, people will look 
they, they will just walk through as quickly as they can. They will not, they will neither look forward nor left and right. If it's 33, they'll look forward, but not left and right. If it's 36, they will look forward and left and right. So all the sides of the fixtures get seen if it's, but if it's 48, they will, they'll actually miss it because it won't catch their eye the right way in front of a wall. It needs to be 48 because you take one step back. All of these little things that make huge difference. I now can work with someone with, with, if it, like an independent retailer, I can walk in and work with them for four hours and their business will go up by about 11% as long as they hold to the principles that I give them in those four hours on their floor. And that's without having to buy any more product. And, you know, like a lot of people, you know, like I ran, like I said, a general nutrition soda. When I first got there, we were doing like 500 grand a year. Right. And then when, when I left, we hit like 1.4 million. Nice. It's huge um, difference. But what it is, because, you know, you realize that when people walk into a store, automatically go to the right hand they automatically go, go to the right side for some reason that's just the way we're human nature and then people are not going to look go down to to get stuff on the bottom shelf no nope. they're not they go the, reach the, the bottom get- right of any shelf is only seen by five percent of the people who look at the at the fixture so the if you have five shelves on a fixture the bottom right side of the bottom shelf is seen by five percent of the people who look at that fixture Yep, and everything between the knees and between your eyes—that's that's prime real estate. And then, yep. why do you think you know so many companies pay millions and millions of dollars to be on that first or second? Oh, show? that's right. I mean, they what do they say? Eye level is buy level. Yeah. So, talk to us now. You're in these airports. I'm sure that had to be holy intense training. Uh, it was insane, and and I did get very good training there, and I and. I learned, I was responsible for so much. That was part of what was crazy is you do at first, you have to understand a basic thing, which is that the stores in the airports that are brand names are not run by the brand names. Brooks, Brooks Brothers is not run by Brooks Brothers. Pandora is not run by Pandora. They're run by a separate company, in this case, Parodies. And Parodies then, as, as running that, I would have 30 brands that would report to me. We had to maintain their inventory separate, but I used the same staff to cover all of them. And we had to meet each of their brand standards. So I'd have somebody work in two or three different stores in a day and have to meet all of those brands. So that's one thing. Then you have hiring and training people who then need to be able to go through and get out of airport security. You have to get stock in and out. We have bidding on the stores, all the politics, the pre-bidding, the bidding process for the stores, the remodeling of the stores, then redoing the stores a couple of years in where you have to do an extra remodel, bidding again seven years later. And even if you win, having to take it down to the studs and rebuild it completely again, and so much more, it was easily the most complex job that I've ever done. And the people who have worked and been successful in that space are some of the strongest, best leaders I've ever met. But what was the turnover rate like? How did that job wear you out? <laughs> the job definitely wore you out. Uh, my the turnover rate at an entry level was pretty high. My we ended up reducing it dramatically in my team, but it was it was very challenging. In the manager level was less so, but we also paid our managers pretty well. And then the longer that it went on, man, it 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 wore you down. There's no doubt about that, especially as we continued to ask the managers to do more with less. And by the time I was there for five years, I'd learned a huge amount. I'd been promoted a couple times and my bosses flew in and they offered me my third promotion in five years. And I sat back and looked at them and I said, what would it look like if I declined? 
and I walked away and went to zero, leaving hundreds of thousands a year to go to zero with no other money in the bank and no other money at home so that I could build my company and do the dream that I had to fulfill the purpose that I was meant for in the world. Because all my life, I, you, you remember earlier on, I said, when I, when I survived that first suicide attempt, I, I had this connection that I was meant to do something that mattered. I was meant to help a lot of people. Well, no matter how many people I helped in the positions that I had, and I got to a spot where I was leading a couple thousand people, I had a couple hundred million in business, I never felt fulfilled. So I recognized that I needed to take all of these skills, all these understandings that I had and go help people in a broader way that meshed with my vision and my connection and the fiber of my being. I had to go find my mission and my resonance and do that thing. Okay, so then, you know, a lot of people that, that listen to this are veterans, entrepreneurs, sometimes both. And, you know, when we get out of the military, a lot of us, you know, we're, even though we're all hoo hoo and hardcore, you know, we get used to getting paid on the 1st and the 15th. <laughs> yeah. You know, we get used to getting TRICARE and all that. Uh, and then when we get out, like my friend Nick, Nick says, you know, once you get out of the military, the military doesn't give a shit about you and your phone stops ringing. And so, you know, a lot of people, when they get out, you know, they, they miss their camaraderie. Um, they miss having a mission in life. Yeah. So they get kind of spiral. And a lot of guys, you know, when they first get out or girls, you know, they want to start a company. So they start a t-shirt, hat, uh, coffee, liquor company, you know, six months later, they're $10,000 in debt and don't know what the hell just happened. And the guys that are married, never sat down and had that conversation right with significant other you know i'm going to start a company this is you know this is going to be my second wife um so you know and they don't go talk to their wives until the shit excuse me, i try not to curse but it's yeah you're good uh, man i'm flex but you know um they don't until it hits the fan and then they got to have a really really hard conversation so what was that conversation when it was like, all right, honey, we've been at this table many times before. But <laughs> this time I want to start my own company. What was that conversation like? Well, it was I think it was a little different and because we had been at that at that spot. And for so many other times it had been other people's choice that we were at that table. And this was me saying, look. I am not happy. I am not fulfilled. This is having a negative physical impact on my life. And I want to do something about it. And I believe that I've finally put our put us in the space where I can do something about it. And I think it's the right thing to do. I think that I, I've done some things to mitigate risk where I can, but there is real risk. And here's the plan. Here's what I'm going to try and do. It may not work. And if it doesn't work, if I have to, even though it would roughly kill me in a year, I can go back and do something else. And I, so I had, I did have a, I did have a plan that said, look, here's a fail safe that, because I knew that I could get another job. It may not be 300 grand a year, but I knew I could go get another six figure job. I could go sell. If nothing else, I could jump out and sell and make a ton of money. So I knew that there was an opportunity to do it. And 
she saw the damage that it was, that it had been doing to me, that it had been just physically destroying me emotionally. It had been hard. She'd been on, she'd been on all the vacations with me when I'm working a hundred hours a week. And like my vacation was only working 50 hours while I'm getting a, you know, we're at the water park and I'm getting a phone call and stepping out for, for an hour while they just play while I go and, and deal with an issue that had come up. And she, she said, look, it can't be, much worse than that. Now there are moments where maybe it could have been a little worse, but for the most part, she said, she said, look, you, it, it, with eyes open. And that's the key. I agree with you. You got to have the conversation and make your decision with your eyes open and be realistic about it. I wasn't selling pie in the sky. Hey, look, I'll be at $5 million in six months. I wasn't saying that. I was saying I've done a lot of these pieces as it turns out, a lot wasn't enough to get to all. We can come to that in a minute. But I've done a lot of these. Here's what I believe to be true. Here's my path to do it. And here's what happens if it doesn't work. And because I had that clear piece, she said, yeah, it's scary. It's hard because security is one of the things that she, like like many wives yeah. and many spouses, wants. Security is really important. Or she said, I'm, I'm willing to give up the security to step out into that space. Now, you know, like I'm a big Shark Tank guy. I love Shark Tank. Me too. And every time I watch them, you know, like they say, you know, if you don't have a business plan, you do not have a business. You have a hobby. So what was your because I'm sure you just didn't start praying and spraying. You had to have a plan. Well, what was your plan? I, I had a plan, but. You talk about no no plan surviving contact with the enemy. There were some there were some blind spots I had in my life. And these are blind spots that I now help my clients to avoid. One of the biggest ones is that I had always had an opportunity to refine, but I'd never had to create. And refining something that already exists is an entirely different skill set than creating it from zero. I am very, very good at refining that whole synthesis thing. Man, I can make that happen. I'd grown companies from um, a million to tens of millions. I'd grown company from tens of millions to hundred million. Like I'd done that, but I'd never made it from zero. And I learned very much that I'm a refiner, not a creator. So one of the things I discovered early on is, oh, look, this takes a lot more time than I thought it would, and it's really hard for me. These particular skills are. If I were to do it again today, I would approach it very differently because I've learned them. So now I help my clients do that. I also didn't listen to some advice that I got. Dan, you need to understand who your target audience is. And I said, no, you do. I can help everyone. <laughs> As it turns out, not so much, really. If you try and help everyone, you help no one. I just, I started coaching. So I did have a plan. I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't want all of this to sound or any of this to sound like I didn't have a plan. I did. I just had a couple of key blind spots that were really important. So I, I started coaching and I did really well. I approached coaching differently than really anybody I know. I don't do contracts for my coaching because I never want anybody to wake up and think I have to meet with Dan. I only want them to wake up and think I get to meet with Dan. And with that, about 95% of my clients stay with me for more than a year, 85 for more than three years. So we've made huge impact. It's worked really well. And we've grown companies from zero to two or three million. We've grown companies from half a million to over one and a half million. We've done a lot of really cool things. We've helped people achieve their dreams that weren't financially based. A lot of very cool things. But in those early days, I was able to do that for others, but I was creating from zero myself, and that was hard. 
you know, and a lot of people, you know, like anybody, you know, they say, well, you know, any like everybody cracks on Donald Trump, you know, um, that, you know, OK, anybody can become a billionaire. But, you know, he his father gave him a million dollars and he became, you know, a billionaire through hard work, through an un, un, an work ethic that is just stupid. And then, you know, you get a guy like, because I'm a big sports guy. I'm a big sports geek, always have been. You know, then you get a guy like Allen Iverson, you know, made over $400 million in his career and is bankrupt today. <laughs> you know, so a lot of times, you know, sometimes it takes money to make money. But sometimes it's the people that start with a lot of money that end with nothing. And for guys like me and you, you know, we start, we're literally, like I started this podcast, I had nothing, zero, right? And had no knowledge either. So I'm just shooting, you know, shooting blanks. But eventually you learn that, you know, <clears throat> you know, you have to learn to be very frugal, you know, in order to start your business on a shoestring. Yeah. So what was it like starting your business on that shoestring? Well, again, speaking of blind spots, I spent in some areas that I that I would not, <coughs> frankly, I wouldn't allow my clients to spend in today. I mean, they make their own choices, but I would I would stand up and stamp my foot before I'd let them before they do it. They'd have to go through me to do it. And I I made some I did some really good choices, right? I, I decided I would I know that every company, every time you double. You have to rebuild a big part of the company and you can bypass that if you plan some specific things ahead. So I committed up front that I would build a company that didn't have to be rebuilt until after it was well over 10 million a year. That was a good choice. There were some spots where I spent money in that process that I spent them early because I decided certain things were important. Like, oh, a really a big website is important. Frankly, it's not. Uh, it, it, you can have a one-page website or no website and run a very successful company. Well, that that's thousands of dollars that you can save. You can you. It's not that it, it's not that it doesn't matter at all. It's more just that it's a business card. When most people look at it, an ability to process fund process sales that matters certainly. I I did have a clear path to profit that mattered. And being able to do that was good. But here's another mistake that I made. And, and that was that I decided I would try and do all of the things at once. Oh, I've got these five things I want to do. Let me just try and do them all at once. Well, if you try and do everything at once, you're not doing really well on any of them. So I, ne I needed to have spent time focusing on a thing and getting it right and then getting another thing and adding to that. You hear that on Shark Tank all the time too. And so I... I I like to say that some of my best lessons are the don't be a Dan lessons. Don't do what I did. And those are, those are the cases. And so I would, I got clients that were incredibly loyal and who were paying me well and we did very well, but I didn't escalate as well as I could have because I missed some of those steps early on that thankfully because of how I learn, now I'm able to keep my clients in a really good space and help them to not make those, those mistakes, but to go forward and leverage it well. The final mistake that I call out is that, and this this one I think is really important for new entrepreneurs, for those who want to build a new company. It is that I, I and I made the mistake in two ways, and it relates to adding people to my team. One, I think you should add people to your team from day one, literally from day one, like day zero, if you can. And most people are, including myself, when I went through this, were scared to do that. 
because we think, oh, it's a ton of money. It's a ton of money. It's a ton of money. Whether you use a little bit of money or whether you figure out how to do so in trade, building a team from day one is really important. And I waited two and a half, three years to do that. And it, and when I finally decided I would do it, I was already about 4,000 hours of work behind where I could have or should have been. And so it had slowed me down. That said, when I did it, I ended up needing to figure out how to do it the right way. And, and I'd hired thousands of people, literally thousands. And I could do that, but I didn't understand how to hire people to work in a new and growing company particularly if you're if what you need isn't a do it all you need specialists so now i have a group of amazing people on my team who they, they work 5 to 15 hours a week for me it's their second thing in all cases although some of them it'll become their primary thing later this year but i have the things that i'm not good at or don't want to do or shouldn't be spending time on they're able to do and the lesson that i learned is that the bulk of my time needs to be spent on things that either make sales or move the business forward in a meaningful way and i would say that two years ago 95 percent of my team was spent on all the stuff we get sucked into and five percent of it was spent moving things forward now it is about 70 and 30 which is about the best you're usually going to get until you make a lot of success, but making those choices that helps you live on that shoestring, but accelerate faster. And, and it also allows you to have realistic timeframes because unless you catch a lucky star, you're not going to go from zero to millions in a couple of months. You're going to build it over time. So you've got to have a realistic plan to say, I'm, I can dust off the tracks. I can know what switches to throw, but I got to take some time to put coal in the engine. You know, and I love that, you know, but now also you're, you're going to get people, you know, a lot of people, they just, you know, they like to make excuses. They're like, well, I don't have money. Um, I can't do this. I can't do that because I don't have funds. But people don't realize that, you know, if you go back old school, like I'm an old school guy. Um, you know, I do a lot of bartering because, you know, that's just the way I am, you know, and like on my, my podcast, you know, I have 20, um, 20 sponsors on my show, right? And they don't pay at all, but they, they promote the show. So it's kind of like we went to that old school bartering stuff. And a lot of people are afraid to say, you know, say, listen, you know, Jack, you know, Jack may be a carpenter. I may need some carpentry work done at my house, but if you need your business promoted, I can promote you. And a lot of people, they, they kind of forget about that whole bartering thing. And I think like what you said, I think that makes a lot of sense. But now I got to ask you, because I, I, it's been going around in my brain and I got a TBI, so if I don't say it, it it's not going to happen. Tell me about the unintentional asshole. All right. I got to tell you about that. I do want to make a comment about what we were just talking about as well, because hiring people, there's so many mental barriers that we make. And they're, they're, we tell ourselves all kinds of stories, most of which are total bull about why we can't have people on our team. I bought into all of those stories and we think, oh, people, why would people work for me? Why would people, why would people donate their time to me? Why would they make trade? All of that's ridiculous. And it's so much so that I made a training call. It's one of our one hour win series that in one hour, I literally teach people how to build their team with no money up front, including getting them, getting them and telling the story of how I got past it and giving them the tools they need to do so. And then the second one hour win in the series was 10 steps to effective hiring in case people didn't have those skills. It's so important 
building a team around you is one of the most critical things you can do. Oddly enough, with the rollout and the relaunch of our new of our foundations of success platform coming up, I'm adding 10 people to my team in this way right now. So I when I when I say it, I'm absolutely living that. Let's come to the book. <laughs> the yep. unintentional asshole. So I I have known for some time that I needed to write a book. I've been asked to, I've been pushed to it. It's finally made it to the list. I, I when I when I focus upon my north star, my north star in the world is to inspire true generational change that will reduce hunger, human trafficking, poverty, and racism by fifteen percent in the next fifteen years. My path to doing that is equipping a million women creatives, entrepreneurs with the foundations of success that they need to achieve their dreams with thus the platform. And if we do that, they'll naturally inspire that generational change. Well, as part of this, I have I always ask myself, what will move us the furthest, the fastest? And as much as people have encouraged me to do a podcast, I ended up coming to that about two years ago. As much as they've encouraged me to do encouraged me to do a book, I've not wanted to sit down and do the repetitive work I know it'll require. We've talked all that we talked several times about how I hate that kind of work, but as my story has built, I've recognized passionately that our story is the most powerful thing we have, that it's the only unique thing we have, and that if we share the good and the bad, like we do in these, a lot of times it can help people. But if we share the ugly, that's what transforms lives. And the ugly truth for me is that up until ten years ago, I was the unintentional asshole. I think so many people are. We have good hearts, but ego is covering our insecurity. And I lived in that world. After my second suicide attempt, my life was just broken and I rebuilt myself and I've worked really hard to not be that person and to be the person instead that I want to be in the world. But I feel like telling that story, my, the, the on our podcast, Dreams Are Real, we tell the superhero origin stories. I don't claim to be anything close to a superhero, but I do feel it's important to share my origin story, similar to what we've done here to share that and what I've learned from it in the hopes that it will be an inspiration for others to be able to step forward and recognize that their choices can create change and that they are meant for something that matters and to help them find their North Star as well. So the book is The Unintentional Asshole, My Journey from Devastation to Dreams. Okay, so now let me ask you, because when I wrote my book, and it's been out two years now, on Amazon, still doing well, still helping people. Congrats. It, it was very cathartic for me. Um, unfortunately, you know, it ripped open a lot of wounds so they can heal. And, you know, I had to ask people, I'm like, dude, did this really happen? I was drunk. I don't remember. So tell me, you know, tell, tell me what really happened. <laughs> right. And, uh, but, you know, and I learned a lot from writing my book. Was it very cathartic for you? So I'm still in process, but I, I would say that, from I've done all the outlining. The book is going to come out in December. And the reason that we're pre-selling it as early as we are is so that $5 from every pre-sale can go to forming our new foundation called Light from Darkness to help prevent suicide in the world. And we want to do it before Amazon gets a hold and takes 70%. So that's why we're announcing it now and talking about it. And for me, I would say that there's a bit of catharsis in it, but more it more of that came over the last couple of years as I've processed most of those things and guested on podcasts and shared deeply on my own. And I've gone through those. And what is coming to me is more that I've gotten pretty comfortable with sharing a lot of it, but for some reason, putting it down in print in a book 
feels harder. And I'm, I'm doing that. I don't know. I feel, I almost feel like I need more permission, more approval. Like I need, it needs to be okay. And that is, that's the learning that I'm gaining from it is that is to step through the resistance that I've been facing about it for a while. Not as much the processing of the emotions, although that could change as I get closer to the end. We have a very deep, full outline. I've got the stories. I just need to sit down and do the rest of the writing, most of which will happen in May, June, and July. Okay, so now the last couple of minutes, just, I love your podcast. I had such an amazing time on it. You did an amazing job with the graphics, and I'm so honored that you did that. So talk to us about your podcast and how you how it's going for you and why you started podcasting. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the kind words. I loved having you there. And I, I love the opportunity to do it, which is funny because for two years I was asked to do a podcast and I said, no, 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 because I, not because I, I wasn't willing, but because of two things, one, the repetitive nature and two, the fact that I didn't want to do something if the purpose was already served in the world. I traveled two years ago to Asia. I was fortunate to be there with a group called Freedom Summit Global that I helped form. And we spoke throughout Asia, six countries in 45 days. And as I was traveling, I was sharing a, a topic that was titled Dreams Are Real, Overcoming Our Own Objections to Create the Life We Want. And interestingly enough, based on the timing of you and I recording this, it was Two years ago today, that the that the probably the most challenging day of that happened, would, because my my story that I was sharing was to honor my mother who passed when I was twenty five, and who gave me a lot of things, made a lot of sacrifices to give me a lot of things in the world, and I was honoring her passing, her the twentieth anniversary of her passing, and tomorrow is the twenty second anniversary of her passing. So I remember standing on the stage in Bali and had just having that audience hold me up. It was in that week that I also connected that what I said earlier is true, that the story that we have of our lives is the only unique thing we have and that it's powerful. And so when I came back, I knew I need to do a podcast. I need to give people a chance to really share. Most podcasts, you either get to share some story and then it's pretty fluffy or you get to share or you get to share like your 10 steps to this, but very few do what frankly, you're doing really well here. And I greatly appreciate, which is, which is mixing some practical things and the story and going deep. And I knew there was a need for that. So when I came back, we, we did it. We decided we would take two hour, hour and a half to two hours with all the different guests. And we would interview guests from everywhere. We've been fortunate to have guests from 30 countries that show that no matter where you're from, that from 40 careers that show that no matter what you do and from all different problems, whether it be 40 or 50 people that have shared about suicide or people that have shared about, about their eating disorders or abuse or rape or all of these things that share that prove that two things are true, that there is always light through the darkness and that dreams are always real. And so it became this ability to share hundreds of superhero origin stories in a deep, meaningful way that everyone in the audience would grab onto at least one or two and go, wait, that's me. I can do it. I have a reason and a purpose to step forward and an inspiration to move up, to find my North Star and accomplish my things in life, find out what my purpose is because dreams are real. All right. So let me ask you a question because, you know, um, I've been doing a deep dive on podcasting lately. You know, there's two over 2 million 
podcasts out there, but only 50% of them are actually active. And they say that if you go beyond eight episodes, you're like in the top 20%. But a lot of people, you know, they start a podcast and then they start number watching, you know, and they're like, wait a minute. Well, Joe Rogan has, blah, <laughs> right. blah, 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 you know, and, you know, it was funny. Somebody said, you know, hey, Rich, you know, you're the Joe of Joe's. I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. Nice. But, uh, you know, you start looking at your numbers, you know, like I don't have high numbers and I'm OK with that. But I said, you know, talking to somebody, I'm like, if I have 800 downloads, imagine just 800 people sitting in a room listening to you talk. Right. You know, and how many people you're affecting. So how do you get people that are listening that are podcasters? What are your thoughts on the number watching, the download watching and all that good stuff? I think it's a great question. And one of the things that I train is how to build, maintain, and monetize a podcast. So I, this is right up my alley. I have a whole training segment along that. And, and we've even added it to our platform as well. And I, I think that if you start it looking for numbers, that's one category of people. It's the same people who will go share their things because it's a marketing gimmick and then build something to support the marketing instead of doing something that has deep meaning to them and then marketing that. And I am more the deep meaning guy and then I'll market that. So the numbers are less relevant to me. And I won't tell you I don't look at them, but I look at them for trends as opposed to comparison. Comparison is the thief of joy. And I try to stay away from that. Our, our podcast, has, it probably gets a couple hundred downloads an episode. So it's still very small. And it, I have friends who I have one friend right now who his podcast, which was newly launched in the last year, gets more than 50,000 downloads a month. And I could easily go, oh man, why am I doing this if he's doing that? And what I recognize is this, that the people that I am meant to speak to, the message that I am sharing, that they matter. And that it doesn't matter whether they're, it'd be great. I mean, if there are 5 million of them and it finds them, then great. But if there are five, then that's great too, because it hit them where they needed it, inspired them to what they need. And I am fulfilling the purpose that I have in the world. I'm not fulfilling the purpose that other people have in the world. Joe Rogan has a purpose. That's great. I have a different purpose. And I am here to fulfill my purpose. And I believe the definition of success that I have come to believe that is drastically different than what I believed all of my life until the last year or two is that if I fulfill the purpose I'm meant for in the world today, then I am successful. And I can tell you based upon that criteria, both I and my podcast are successful. So, okay. So now, you know, I, I want them to go out and, you know, buy your trainings and all that stuff, but give us a little nugget on monetization. Absolutely. So monetization for podcasts is what you mean, right? Yep. Yeah. So pod, so for podcasts, I, and I share I share everything. That's what I tell people is when you're when you're paying for things, you're not paying for the info. You can Google anything. What you're paying for is the timely application of it. So I'm glad to share whatever. I'm a, I'm an open book in that way. Uh, when I think of monetizing, I think of it in in three ways. I think of it first as looking at how do I find advertisers and you can have advertisers when you don't have a single download. And I think that's, that's something that most people miss. They think you have to have all these downloads and you have to get advertisers the traditional way. No, you can, you can monetize 
by finding advertisers in your local community that you care about. You've done a great job of connecting with people and you can make different agreements with them. A lot of them can be for money and you can get it supported. I chose to go a little bit of a different path. You can then monetize through affiliate marketing, which is a very, very good way to do it. And you can finally, you can monetize through your, through your own services and products, which is more the path that I go. What would be very interesting though is most of the time, you don't even notice that I'm doing that because my goal is to offer what my audience wants that solves a problem or relieves a pain that they have. I'm not there to pitch something. I'm there to help relieve a pain or solve a problem. And I can, so I monetize doing that. And the way that I do that, just giving some insight, is that I bring people from the podcast, because they're not, most cases, they're, if it's a one-off product like soap or something, like you mentioned earlier, they may very well go, oh, I want to buy that. I'm going to go do that. If it's a service or coaching, usually they're not going to listen to a podcast and go, okay, cool. I'm in. I want the coaching. There's a little more to it. They want to be part of the community. They want to build that no like trust triangle a little more. So I bring them into a Facebook group and then we build a real sincere community that's designed to help people. And then from that group, very gently, we convert. And that's where our, that's where our biggest conversions come from. I love that. Last two questions. Um, so tell us, how do we find you? How do we find your book? How do we find your podcast? I appreciate that, man. You find the podcast, just search Dreams Are Real on your favorite podcast platform. That's the easiest one. But I would, what I would encourage, what I just said a moment ago, join the Dreams Are Real community on Facebook. Come join us there. Connect. It's getting more and more and more active. It's still pretty small, 1,500, 2,000 people. We're growing. We are there. Our stated purpose and the meaning behind the group is how do we help you take the next step toward your dreams? And the you'll see the podcast gets posted in there as well. So I encourage you to look for that for our, for me, you'll find me in that group. You'll also find me under my name, Dan McPherson or leaders must lead pretty much on every platform. So pick your favorite platform, look for those two things. You'll find me. One thing I'd like to, to leave your audience with, if it's all right, is, uh, is a free class from our online platform. If you, is that all right? Oh, heck yeah. All right. So if I love free, 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 man, we love it. So one of the, one of the primary trainings on our online platform is leadership, because I believe leadership isn't only the cornerstone, it's the keystone. And when you think about leadership, in my mind, it comes into four pillars. The first pillar is personal growth because, because leading yourself, that's the hardest person to lead. The second is how do I have an attitude? So attitude, the way I view the world, then once I view the world a certain way, it's connection. How do I connect with the world? And finally, once you have those three, now it's about leading a team. Well, the first pillar of leadership, we have a great training. It's about two hours long. And if you go and register for, if you put a free profile, there's no cost, just put in your profile at foundationsofsuccess.leadersmustlead.com. Very simple, foundationsofsuccess.leadersmustlead.com. And you will get personal growth, which is a two-hour training. It is the exact same training that is fully in the platform. We don't skimp on it. You get downloadable tools, all kinds of fun stuff. I encourage you to enjoy that. But I would love to connect with everyone. And the book is, is going to be out, and you'll see it publicized a lot more. And you'll see it highlighted in the Dreams Are Real group as well. Uh, and I can't wait for it to come out. But I, now I'm going to ask you a favor. You so- got it. No I'm pressure because no, nobody's listening to this anyway. Um, 
but I would love to have your training on podcasting. Cause even though I have, you know, now I'm up to almost 300 episodes. Um, I'm always willing to learn. You and got I it. Think, you know, and, and I like to learn from people that know, cause you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to get a better, you're room. in the wrong room. Right. So, you know, so I would appreciate that. And I would love to check out that. If you, I will would. gladly, I will gladly put you into that spot and get that to you right away. Okay, so now last question I ask everybody, you know, we live in a crazy world. We're living in a COVID world where, you know, if you got if you got kids like we do, you know, a lot of parents are homeschooling kids, grandparents are homeschooling kids. So if I ask the average person to do something in seven days, they're probably never going to get to it. But if I ask a person to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if you know somebody that is struggling in business, or even their podcast, whatever, whatever form of business, what can they do in the next 24 hours to start to write the ship? Well, I would say one thing that they could do that will help them on the path is, and there, and I can answer this in, in a couple of different ways, but the, I'll give you the first one that came to mind. I believe that one of the reasons that people struggle and they wander is because they don't know their North Star. They may know what they're doing right now. They may know something they're passionate about, but they don't know where they're going or what their legacy is. And the first conversation I have with almost everyone is find your North Star. What is your North Star? And then to focus upon only doing the things that move you the furthest, the fastest toward that. So I would encourage someone in the next 24 hours to go join the Dreams Are Real Facebook group. It's free. And then go to unit one, which is free, 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 and watch the training on how to find your North star. And I think they'll find that of great benefit and that will give them a little more of a sense of calm. And they're going to, they're going to feel a lot of bells and whistles go off. Like, Oh, that makes sense. I totally get that. I'm doing that. I'm not doing this. And they'll start on the path to getting there because I, I believe that that is there separate from that, separate from pointing them to any of the things that I do. But I, I have that there because that really is the very first thing. If, if someone asked me, Dan, if you were, if you went to zero and I've been asked this before, Dan, if you went to zero and you had nothing, what would you do? The crazy thing is the very first thing I would do is find my North star. And then I would build towards my personal resonance in a five-step process that I train people on as well. But I, I would do that. But if I were, if I were to take something separately and I, and someone were really struggling and they were and they were just having a rough time of it i would i would have them pause and stop and get away just like go and breathe for a minute because usually a lot of that happens because we have our head down and we're charging forward and we're running into the wall over and over and we've lost perspective and we don't have the space where we have our head up and we look and realize there was a door three steps to our right. And so I would have them pause and breathe and then make a list and assess, okay, where am I really going? And what is the one thing that if I do right now will make all of the others either easier or go away and then only do that one thing for the next 24 hours? I love that, brother. So guys, definitely check them out. Check out the group. Um, look out for the new book, The Unintentional Asshole. I think that's going to – I, I, wa I want to own it just for the title. 
because I can't wait to do a Facebook Live on it. Um, so whenever you get it, I pre- well, I have the pre-order links. I'll give them to you for sure. I just can't. I don't have the Bitly in my head right now. Yep. So, and guys, like I said, check out everything that he's doing. And if you guys like um, homemade soap, definitely check out Maxwell Soaps because he's actually making a difference with the homeless population in California. So I always love to have people that sponsor the show that are changing trying to change the world one person at a time dan brother it's such a pleasure talking to you and i'm so grateful that you took the time to hang out today oh man thank you so much it's been an honor i love what you are doing in the world i love your heart your story your connection and just thank you for having me on man it's been fantastic now i don't know you know how much i'm gonna like you if miami plays uh michigan this year that's that's but that's a different story i mean go blue but okay (laughs) (laughs) all right brother have an amazing day god bless you thank you man Bye bye thank you for joining us today please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.